Good afternoon, and welcome to Outer Cape News on WOMR. My name is Matthew Dunn. This is your update on what's happening on the Lower and Outer Cape, drawing on stories reported in the pages of the Provincetown Independent, the Cape Cod Chronicle, and the Cape Cod Times. In this week's edition, we have several real estate stories, including the transfer of an iconic property in Provincetown's far west end, as well as the pending return of a music festival to Orleans in 2024. And Ira Wood is here to ask the question, what's in a name? An iconic property in the far west end of Provincetown is under new ownership. The Linkris Hotel Corporation, a hotel management and investment company based in Plymouth, has bought the Provincetown Inn from the Evans family, who have owned it since 1977. The total purchase price was $24 million for the six-acre waterfront property, which includes two restaurants, a swimming pool, six function rooms, and 125 parking spaces. That sale closed on December 22nd. A week later, Lincris also closed on the Foxbury Inn, a 12-room hotel nearby at 29 Bradford Street Extension. That property, which also includes a three-bedroom owner's unit, sold for just over $3 million. Lincris already owns four other hotels in Provincetown, the Surfside Hotel, which it bought in 2000, the Harbor Hotel, which it bought in 2018, and the Brass Key and Crown Point Hotels, which it bought in 2021. According to town documents, the Surfside is licensed for 88 rooms, the Harbor Hotel for 139, the Brass Key for 43, and the Crown Point for 37. Adding the 104 licensed rooms at the Provincetown Inn and the 12 licensed rooms at the Foxbury brings the Linkris Group up to 423 rooms in Provincetown, 31% of the town's entire current inventory of 1,380 hotel rooms. That makes Linkris the largest owner by far of Provincetown lodgings. Bob Anderson, president of Linkris, told the Provincetown Independent that the Foxbury Inn is slated to become employee housing to support the company's other Provincetown hotels. Linkris had already purchased the Brass Key and Crown Points employee housing properties in 2021, which include 25 bedrooms across four parcels. Linkris operates about 30 hotels in 15 states, but the majority of them are in New England, Anderson said. He said the company wants to improve the Provincetown Inn's capacity to host weddings, social events, and corporate groups, with a particular emphasis on increasing business during the shoulder season. The company plans to invest about $3 million in updating the Provincetown Inn after the 2024 season. And in a story that we reported last week on Outer Cape News, the Old Sea Pines Inn on Route 6A in Brewster will be under new management in 2024. After 46 years of ownership, Stephen and Michelle Rowan sold the property to the owners of Ocean Edge for just under $2.5 million on December 14th. Originally built in 1850, the inn became the Sea Pine School for Young Women in 1907. The school lasted until the 1970s, and the Rowans bought it in 1977. 
The original mansion on Route 6A at the heart of Ocean Edge was built in 1890 by Samuel Nickerson on 46 acres for his son Roland. The Nickersons sold it to the LaSalle Religious Order in 1945, and that group converted it into a seminary. Corcoran Jennison bought it in 1980 and began converting it into the Ocean Edge Resort, adding a golf course and condos on the other side of Route 6A. Now the Sea Pines Inn will be part of Ocean Edge as well. The inn has 20 guest rooms, with eight rooms and a five-room suite in the main building, and seven more guest rooms in the north building, plus a two-bedroom apartment. There are two function and dining rooms on the property, each with a capacity of 125. The winter storm of December 18th that caused flooding up and down the Atlantic coast and brought salt water into Provincetown's East End was also the cause of a house fire that destroyed Don Walsh's apartment at 674A Commercial Street. Provincetown Fire Chief Mike Travato said the intense winds of that storm dislodged power lines all over town and almost certainly caused a surge of power into Walsh's apartment that lit her appliances on fire. Travato said his crew was at the Sandcastle Inn fighting a pole fire when the call came in for 674 Commercial Street. When firefighters arrived on the scene, the second floor was fully involved, and the high winds were pushing the fire out on both sides of the building. Travato said that both neighboring buildings were close to catching fire. Firefighters hosed down the two adjacent buildings and then put water into the second-story apartment. The fire came almost exactly one month after another storm with strong winds and salt spray caused an electrical fire at the White Dory Condo Complex at 616 Commercial Street, displacing 14 people from their homes just before Thanksgiving. That fire, on November 22nd, began when waves breaking on the other side of the street created enough saltwater spray to short-circuit an outdoor outlet near the basement. During the most recent storm, resident Don Walsh was at work in Wellfleet, where she is executive director and co-founder of the Lily House, a community home that helps terminally ill people live and die in comfort. Walsh said she lost everything she owned in the fire, but her work to help people let go at the end of life has helped her to stay grounded despite the loss. An online fundraiser for Walsh started by a friend after the fire raised $43,000, 20% of which will go to the Lily House. The select board in Wellfleet this week was dealing with the consequences of Rich Waldo's resignation as town administrator. Waldo submitted his resignation to select board chair Barbara Carboni on December 20th, less than 19 months after taking the job. Waldo's contract requires that he give at least 90 days notice of his resignation, but he requested an end date of February 9th. The select board held an executive session on January 2nd to determine what Waldo's last day should be, and will begin the process of advertising the vacancy at its next public meeting on January 9th. Board members expressed interest in appointing Assistant Town Administrator Silvio Gineo as Interim Administrator. Gineo started his job on October 23rd. Waldo has accepted an offer to become the Director of Public Works and Natural Resources in Orleans. Waldo said that he does not want his resignation to reflect badly on the select board, but he told The Independent that working with the select board wasn't always a great situation. Waldo was the town's sixth town administrator in the last 10 years. In Chatham, opioid settlement funds are paying for three contracts with local organizations to provide services to the community. 
In her weekly newsletter, town manager Jill Goldsmith detailed programs that will be covered by the $74,000 received by the town through a settlement between the state and opioid manufacturers and distributors. A recovery coach will be available for free consultations at the police station on George Ryder Road every Wednesday from noon to 4 p.m. Opioid overdose and naloxone distribution training will be offered by the Fishing Partnership Support Services with training materials in multiple languages. And Monomoy Regional High School will train high school students to mentor sixth graders to help educate them about substance abuse and its negative impacts. Opioid abatement funds are expected to be distributed for the next 17 years. The Winter Wednesdays program, a collaboration between the health departments of Provincetown, Truro, Wellfleet, and Eastham, has opened registration for its lineup of free weekly classes that run from mid-January to early March. Developed to help improve social engagement and mental health during Cape Cod's long winters, the program now includes free childcare for all participants in the courses that meet in person in Provincetown. Libraries in Truro, Wellfleet, and Eastham will also host classes this year, and another 10 courses will meet online only. Many of the classes are arts-related, including courses on drawing, clay sculpting, color theory, digital photography, creative writing, and documentary filmmaking. There are also two classes on tarot, four virtual yoga classes, a knitting class, a cross-stitch class, a cookie-baking class, and classes for ecstatic dancing, qigong, and zumba. A class on parenting will meet in Provincetown, and a class on federal jury trials will meet in Wellfleet, and a group will meet online to discuss topics about dying and death. Supplies for all courses are provided at no cost, and free cab rides are available for Provincetown, Truro, and Wellfleet residents. Course descriptions, meeting times, and registration information are all available at winterwednesdays.org. For Outer Cape News, this is Beth Dunn. Plans to redevelop the site of the former underground mall off of Route 6A in Orleans continue to advance through local review, potentially setting the stage for a spring groundbreaking on the highly anticipated project. The Site Plan Review Committee in December unanimously approved a plan to bring 29 units of housing to the long-vacant 3.6-acre parcel with conditions. Chris DeSisto of Maplehurst Builders bought the property in July of 2021. DeSisto initially sought to build 43 units of housing on the property, but financing issues as well as issues with putting a septic system on the site led him to scale the project back to 29 units. The plan approved by the site plan committee shows six buildings on the property, including one with an apartment and office for an on-site superintendent. The plans show eight one-bedroom units and 21 two-bedroom units. DeSisto told the site plan committee that he plans to subdivide the property into two parcels. The units in three two-story buildings fronting Route 6A would be sold as condominiums. The back parcel would include two three-story buildings that would be rented as workforce housing. 
DeSisto said that selling some of the units as condos would help deal with the challenges surrounding financing for the project. Project architect Derek Bloom said the building's fronting Route 6A will take the form of a traditional two-story single-family home, complete with gabled roofing. The rear buildings will have level roof lines with slightly different elevations. DeSisto said the buildings will eliminate about half of the open paved surface that currently exists on the site. The plan shows 88 parking spaces, many of which will be housed inside the existing covered mall space. The buildings will be serviced by both on-site septic and innovative alternative nitrogen-reducing technologies. Landscaping for the project includes green space in the center of the development and natural screening fronting Route 6A. The committee approved DeSisto's plan with some conditions. Those include approval from the Board of Health for the on-site septic system and modifying the entrance to the property from Nell's Way to be 18 feet wide. A swing test needs to be conducted by the fire department to ensure that emergency vehicles can safely access and turn on the site. Following the approval of the Site Plan Review Committee, DeSisto received a revised approval from the Old Kings Highway Regional Historic District Committee for the 29 units. The committee had previously approved the project at 43 units. DeSisto said he plans to bring the project before the Zoning Board for review on February 21st. The Outermost Roots and Blues Festival, organized by Hog Island Beer and the nonprofit Friends of Nauset Beach, made its return to Orleans on Columbus Day weekend this year after a four-year layoff due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Situated in the beach's new upper parking lot, the festival drew about 700 concert-goers despite gray and rainy conditions. On December 13th, organizers Mike McNamara and Mac Gallant of Hog Island and Garrett G. Love Dutton came to the select board with interest in bringing the festival back for 2024, again at Nauset Beach and again on Columbus Day weekend. The festival was held in 2018 and 19 as the Cape Cod Roots and Blues Festival, but was rebranded following the COVID-19 pandemic. Organizers said this year's event was an effort to reintroduce the festival and rebuild it locally. The festival attracted 2,200 concert goers in 18 and 3,700 in 19. While this year's festival sold out, attendance dropped due to the weather. But both organizers and town officials expressed optimism about growing the event in 24 and beyond. McNamara touted the economic benefits that come with staging the festival in town. Several local businesses were hired to help produce the festival, including Advanced Audio and Video, which provided staging for the event. McNamara said $45,000 was spent locally to help produce this year's festival. And as in past years, the Friends of Nauset Beach were able to present a check to the town. The nonprofit issued the town's Natural Resources Department a check for $5,000. This year, the festival made use of a portion of the new upper parking lot at Nauset Beach, while parking was provided on the lower lot. 
Next year, organizers hope to use the full upper lot to bring attendance back to pre-pandemic numbers. McNamara sought support from the select board to accommodate 5,000 concert goers for 2024, the same number permitted for the festival in 2019. Select board member Mark Matheson said with three years of concerts under their belts, both organizers and the town have demonstrated their ability to safely run the festival. Mefford Runyon also spoke in favor of the festival, but cautioned against overgrowing the event, a problem he said has plagued the annual Oysterfest celebration in Wellfleet. Gallant said in growing the festival, organizers hope to turn it into a weekend-long economic driver so restaurants, shops, and local businesses can reap the benefits beyond the day of the festival. Andrea Reed of the Select Board envisioned multiple events throughout the weekend scheduled around the Nauset Beach Festival, but however the festival unfolds in the future, town officials were unanimous in their support of the organizers bringing the event back to town. In Harwich, the Harwich Conservation Trust has raised the $4.25 million needed for the purchase of more than 12 acres in the Red River Valley, which includes structures that will serve as new offices and a training center. Another $750,000 was contributed by two anonymous challenge donors for parking, trailhead enhancements, and the addition of electric vehicle charging stations. Harwich Conservation Trust Executive Director Michael Locke said the acquisition will protect the watershed headwaters upstream from Red River Beach, the town's largest and most popular beach on Nantucket Sound. It will further protect public well field recharge land for town wells, serving 13,000 residents in Harwich and 7,000 residents in Chatham. Locke said the land was the missing link in an overall 475-acre wildlife habitat corridor that crosses both towns. A currently existing home set back from Route 28 on the south side will be renovated into offices for the trust, and the large barn adjacent to the house will be converted into a learning center. If all goes well, Locke said, the hope is to open the new hub for land conservation and nature discovery next fall. Also in Harwich, Leo Kakunis and Peter Pekarski have taken out nomination papers for the April 9th special election to fill the unexpired term on the select board created by the resignation of board member Mary Anderson. Kakunis, a former Barnstable County Commissioner, was the first candidate to announce his intention to seek the unexpired term. He took out nomination papers on December 26th. Pekarski, a former selectman and vice president at the Cooperative Bank of Cape Cod, took out his papers on December 29th. The successful candidate will serve as a select board member for 43 days. Anderson's three-year term was scheduled to expire on May 21st. Kakunis said he plans to seek the unexpired term only and will not be a candidate for the three-year select board term that will be on the annual election ballot in May. Pekarski, who fell three votes short in the annual election last May to incumbent Donald Howell, said he will be taking out nomination papers for the three-year term as well. 
Massachusetts Governor Maura Healey began the new year by honoring an environmental group founded in Brewster. Healy issued a governor's citation to sustainable practices in recognition of the group's effort to implement a municipal plastic bottle ban across all 15 towns on Cape Cod, as well as a single-use plastic takeout container ban throughout the Cape and the Commonwealth. Sustainable Practices was founded in 2016 by Brewster resident and Northeastern University Associate Professor of Economics, Madhavi Venkatesan. To date, a municipal plastic bottle ban is on the books in some form in all 15 Cape Towns. Nine towns have restricted the commercial sale of single-use plastic water bottles, and two towns, Harwich and Yarmouth, have eliminated plastic takeout items such as forks, knives, and containers. Venkatesan was inspired to advocate for a ban on plastic items due to the fact that recycling is an incomplete solution and nearly all plastic eventually winds up in the environment. Venkatesan said petroleum-based plastic production contributes to greenhouse gases and climate change, but she also stressed that reducing plastic use is a public health issue. She said the chemicals leaching out of the plastic are tied to ADHD, endocrine disruption, autoimmune disease, cardiovascular disease, and obesity. In the year to come, Venkatesan is looking to build relationships with other local environmental organizations and to collaborate with local town governments in promoting the Plastic Reduction Initiative and Commercial Water Bottle Ban. For more information and to find out how you can help, you can visit the Sustainable Practices website at sustainablepracticesltd.org. For Outer Cape News, my name is Matthew Dunn. William Shakespeare famously asked, What's in a name? And he didn't think very much, because of course he continued, A rose by any other name would smell just as sweet. I personally beg to differ. In fact, one thing you may not know about me is that my given first name is not actually Ira, but David. Ira is my middle name, and I started using it when I published my first book. Like many kids, I never really liked my name. David Wood seemed so ordinary, so dull. It didn't help that David Wood, along with Dick and Jane, was also a character in the boring old grade school readers. I desperately wanted a cool name like the popular movie stars Tab Hunter, Rip Torn, Cary Grant. Although I was clueless at the time, they had all changed their names from Arthur, Elmore, and Archibald, respectively. It's not that the name Ira is especially cool, but it wasn't ordinary. Before Ira started to appear as a sort of quirky Jewish friend in sitcoms like Seinfeld and Mad About You, there were very few noteworthy Iras around. Ira Gershwin was one, and maybe Ira Levin, who wrote Rosemary's Baby, and that's really stretching it. 
David was the name my parents called me long after I started to become known as Ira. If you've ever tried to get your parents to call you something other than the name they gave you at birth, you know it's an uphill battle. As much as they love you, they always see you as a child. Worse, they see your name change as an affront to their judgment. What's the matter with Archibald Leach? I imagine Cary Grant's mother asking. Many kids are named after relatives. When I was growing up in a working-class suburb, I knew a lot of Bobby's, son of Robert, and Jack's, son of John. Nobody wanted to be called Junior. And when I moved to Cambridge and met a number of upper-class kids named Terry, I learned that it was a nickname for Tertius, meaning the third to be called by that name. Thurston Howell III was probably called Terry by his family before he was marooned on Gilligan's Island. Many baby names are aspirational because parents want to give their kids a leg up in the world. My father was born in a poor ethnic enclave in Brooklyn and was given the name Marvin, an ancient Celtic name conferring a strong and regal impression. He had another name, a Hebrew name, but Marvin was meant to help him succeed in the secular world. This is hardly a Jewish thing, by the way. Think of the brilliant departed musician whose parents named him Prince. In the long tradition of kids who hated their names, when Prince was growing up, he asked his friends to call him Skipper. Much later in life, he changed his name to the love symbol. Want to take an even deeper dive? Check out a feature on the Social Security Administration website called Popular Baby Names by Decade. Scroll down to your birth year to find out the most frequently used names in America. There was nary a Noah or Liam and Olivia or an Isabella when I was born, but now they're the rage. For a really wild ride on the name bandwagon, there's nothing like the players' names in the NFL. Barkevius Mingo, DeBrickashaw Ferguson, Martavius Bryant. Damn, their parents had style. So, what's in a name? Basically, everything about you. Your memories and self-worth, your ambitions and the way you want to be perceived, for me, David would always be the chubby kid who was picked last in the schoolyard games. David was the kid who had trouble reading until fifth grade. David was an underperforming disappointment to his father. Until I became Ira and then Woody to my close friends, David was the person I was longing to unbecome. Now that my parents have passed, only Social Security uses the name David, which is fine by me, because it's on a check. I'm Ira Wood, and that's my opinion. And 
that does it for this week's edition of Outer Cape News. Thanks go to the Provincetown Independent, the Cape Cod Chronicle, and the Cape Cod Times. Thanks also to Beth Dunn and Ira Wood for their contributions to the program. And thanks to Henry and Jane Fisher and Jacob Greenberg for being sustaining members of Outer Cape News. And now stay tuned for Friday Afternoon Jazz with guest host Gary Williams here on listener-supported Outermost Community Radio, WOMR.